This is the Two Spies Podcast, studying the Bible in a different way. What does the verse say? What is the topic being addressed? How does this affect me today? Go deeper in Scripture. Now the conversation begins with your hosts, David and Mark. So just kind of recap, you know, we're, we're not really going verse by verse necessarily like we've been doing. We're just kind of taking... Um, Abraham's whole life and kind of digging into certain things about Abraham. So, you know, last week we kind of um, skipped ahead and talked about Isaac a little bit, and then we're kind of going back. So it's just kind of generic. Um, So tonight we're kind of talking about Melchizedek. This is after Abram goes to war and saves his um, nephew Lot, and they're both wealthy, and um, they split and divide the lands, and... um, Strangely, Abram gives a tenth um, to Melchizedek. So we're kind of entering this. There's only a few verses about Melchizedek, which is um, the interesting part. And, you know, the listener might be wondering, how in the world are you going to do a whole podcast on this man? But We're just going to talk really (laughs) slow. So don't (laughs) fast forward. Play it in slow-mo. Anyway, so so first of all, you know Melchizedek. There there has been um, some speculation um, between is he a symbolic figure or is he a literal figure? And I don't think there's a lot of evidence that supports symbolic. I just, I mean, especially the way he, the Book of Hebrews talks about him and Abraham giving a tenth to a person. You're um, saying he's not symbolic as in only a symbol, but not a truth person. But uh, Right. But he's a symbolic figure, but he's also a real person. He's an actual person. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Usually when I think in terms of right. allegory or symbolism, I still think there is a literalism laying under it. Sure. At the same time. Sure. And we, we'll, <clears throat> we'll get there. And I know you think yeah. that. Too. I just wanted to say that, that we straighten that for sure. Yeah. So I think the first thing, I don't know if you want me to kind of talk about the tithe or if you want to kind of talk about... Uh, Melchizedek as a priest and a king. Uh, let's look. I'm just trying to get an idea of the flow of my notes. I don't think. Uh... Go ahead and, and do the tithe. Just, okay. just go ahead because we're going to be kind of swishing around back and forth anyway. <laughs> yeah. So uh, tithe, there's always been these arguments about um, is it. Uh, Old Testament principle, New Testament principle, both. Um, what is the purpose? What is it? So really, a tithe just simply means a tenth of something. Um, it was given to the uh, the tithe was given to the Levites for their service in the sanctuary. It's the Levites were the only um, tribe, so to speak, that didn't inherit any land, and so their um, inheritance, so to speak, is the tithe from everyone else. Um, so, you know, question is, why did Abram even give a tithe to Melchizedek? Because a tithe hasn't really been um, instructed really until the Mosaic law when he presents all these rules and regulations in Leviticus and Deuteronomy about what a tithe is and where it goes. So I do find it interesting that um, Abram just decides, hey, I'm going to give a tenth to this guy. Yeah. So... Um, it's kind of interesting. Kind of maybe like uh, I didn't think about it until you said it that way, but uh, any pastor now will tell you tithes and offerings are not the same thing. That the tithe is the Lord's, yeah, for sure. And if you don't give it, I think is is it? Uh, it's not Haggai. 
Malachi. Yeah. It's Malachi's directive, basically, that if you don't give that, then you're stealing what is God's. So the tithe belongs to him, period. You do it. And then offerings are that above and beyond amount. Right. But in Abraham's case, it looks like since it's not actually a commanded law, it's not a, <clears throat> a required thing by God, his tithe is actually his offering. Yeah. It's free will. Well, if you think about it, if you go back to um, Corinthians when Paul is talking about God was a cheerful giver, and I've heard, um, I think Francis Chan's one, and I've heard other speakers talk about if you cannot give cheerfully, you shouldn't give at all. And then there's other people that say, no, you should give because it's a command. You reap what you sow. I think I'm feeling disgruntled right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there you go. but, you know, I, I see, you know, there is that law of reaping and sowing that it, it just happens. Yeah. It's just part of it. Um, I, I, you know, I do believe, you know, well, I'll go, I'll, go, I'll go ahead and mention it. Um, you know, when Jesus is is talking um, about tithing, he does mention, you know, look at these Pharisees. They tithe their spices. They tithe um, all these things, but they neglect the weightier matters, which is uh, mercy and justice. And, right. And you know, Jesus isn't isn't saying neglect and tithe, but he's saying there's more, there's heavier matters um, that we should pay attention to. And um, so, I think sometimes we can make it legalistic in the sense of, um, you know, you well, this person's tithing, they're commi- they're they're obeying God's commands, but if you're not, um, you know. If you're not visiting the orphans, if you're not um, helping out the widows, if you're not, um, you know, helping the poor, if you're not visiting, um, you know, people, you know, if you're not doing other things, then, you know, Jesus is saying, well, there, there's heavier, there's, there's way more heavy matters at hand right, than just that are the more tithe. important. Sure. If you're not smiling when you're giving your tithe, you're not Christian anyway. <laughs> you got to shout, woo! Here's my ten percent. <laughs> <laughs> well, make sure you tell everybody. <laughs> so, um, I do think it's interesting when you talked about Malachi that it's it's often quoted. You know, um, you know, don't rob God if if you withhold your tithe. You know, you're robbing God, and yet Malachi is really talking about the abuse from the priests and the Levites on their abuse of the tithe. You mean the or, clergy? Yeah. Or they're not, or they're not tithing <laughs> off their tithe. They're yeah. they're keeping it, and and they're you know living a life of luxury, so to speak, when all these people are um, get, obeying God, and giving their tithe, and then these people are living in this way that they're not supposed to be living, because they're supposed to be giving a tithe also um, to God. Yeah. So it's just yeah. kind of an interesting thing. That is something I had looked at and written down in my notes too. Is in a little bit when we follow kind of the honor of the patriarchs, right. it ends up following, and and we say there's not a lot on Melchizedek. You, the listener, you can go read everything there is to read about Melchizedek in Hebrews. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and there's nothing uh, vastly new and broad about it in any sermon you're going to hear that expounds on uh, Melchizedek at all. It came out of Hebrews, yeah. and that's it, and it's done. There's nothing else. No, not really. <laughs> but uh, anyway, just on that, it in, in that area, it says that Levi was basically the Levites or Levitical system is tithing upward through Abraham to Melchizedek. So I had just made a note on that. Who do the Levites give a tithe to? Hmm. By by law, they give a tithe to God. Right. 
that's the only person I ever give a tithe to. <laughs> yeah. So it does kind of put a picture type easier again in another layer, maybe or another another angle onto Melchizedek. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, also, just some references <laughs> about tithing. Leviticus twenty-seven um, talks about the Levites rely on tithes. Um, but they're not excluded from tithing themselves like we just talked about. Uh, Deuteronomy 12, chapters 12, 14, and 26 all deal with the laws of tithing. I can't keep up, man. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> I forgot we're slowing down. Oh, yeah, go ahead. Remember, no. Um, but Deuteronomy 12, 14, and 16 talk about breathe the tithe as an offering or sacrifice of gratitude towards God, which Abraham is doing. And just to pause, I remember, you know, we've had that conversation of, um, which it's difficult for me when we, when we do, like, especially a person like Abraham, Abraham, that, you know, when you do Old Testament studies, sometimes we have to think these guys don't have, um, you know, the Mosaic Law. They don't have the New Testament. They don't know yeah. about Jesus, et cetera. So when, when, you, when you even think of tithing, you can't think in the same um, terms somewhat of uh, you can't put Abram in the category where Malachi is talking or, or the laws that Moses presents to yeah. the Levites. So you got to kind of figure out what does it actually mean when Abram is giving a tenth? Why, why is he giving a tenth? Um, because there's not a law. There's not some kind of gratitude of um, I mean, he is grateful for what God's done and Mal- Melchizedek blesses Abram. So we have to think sometimes we have to take some things out of the picture um, and figure out what he really means when he. We can take our thinking tithe. out of the picture. Yeah. And, and re picture our thinking. <laughs> there you go. That's a lot of twisting words going on there. <laughs> Twisted on myself. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> yeah. um, like Hebrews, like we talked about, uh, chapter seven, tithing in the old covenant was highlighting Melchizedek. And again, Second Corinthians, Galatians six six. I hadn't thought about it, but let's stop there for a second. Um, sure. You say Gala- uh, Hebrews is highlighting tithing through Melchizedek yeah. to highlight tithing post law, post cross, post church exist yeah. in Hebrews to go all the way back and grab the incident that's it's first appearing in the Bible and say, "Hey, look at this example. Oh, we got a guy giving." The tithe because he just decided he wanted to out of his own mind, his own heart. That's that's a neat example to go think, back and grab that teaching from. And I think that's why Paul talks about God as a cheerful giver because, again, the sowing and reaping is there, and there is these um, laws put into place and good principles. You know, um, as far as our faith, can do you have enough faith to live on ninety percent versus one hundred percent? And yeah, and giving your ten percent to a church can. Um, pay for you know those in clergy, those um, studying the word, and those taking their time to visit people and so forth. So there is, there is good principles in tithing, but um, there's also this this gratitude that should come from our hearts because um, it, it is a different concept. It's it's you know people don't understand uh, you know giving ten percent um, to a church or to uh, you know a person, but here, you know, you have this, uh, you have it presented in such a way where um, Abram didn't need to be told, um, here's how here's how to bless someone or here's how to be thankful. 
Um, yeah. We just see Abram's heart shown. Well, this guy just blessed me. Um, you know, I just won a war. I'm wealthy. The least I could do is give this guy 10%, you know, a tithe. And, and so. I'm looking at the, his motive, though, maybe in his heart. You just named his situation, but what would his motive be? Because I was thinking about that, looking at some of the notes you uh, emailed me. Like, uh, he just won a war. He There's something in him that says, I'm thankful. I got to do something. This guy walks up right here, and for some reason he picks him out and says, I know, I'll give him. Why? What about Melchizedek standing there, looks any different from any other person who walked up to him? Yeah, but for something there was there was something different about him. He just looks at him and says, "I'm going to give this guy ten percent of everything I just won." He had nothing to do with what you just did. <laughs> Who is he? Yeah, and he walks up and wants to have communion with him. So yeah, it's kind of an interesting little story. So I mean, just a few things about tithing. Not not a whole lot, but I do think it's interesting <clears throat> that Abram does give a tenth to Melchizedek. Yeah. Well, I was going to look at the uh, order of Melchizedek, or the phrase, the order of Melchizedek. What is the order of Melchizedek? And it's It comes through uh, Psalm 110, and then it gets re-quoted throughout the New Testament a little bit. And for the most part, Hebrews really is the one that explains. Hebrews 7 and uh, Hebrews 8 explains what that entails. But uh, just to go through Psalm 110 first. This is verses 1 through 6. Uh, Yahweh said to my Lord, and I will use, if your translation says the Lord, all capitals, that's great. I'm going to be using the name Yahweh just to put it in place of the Lord because in other places in here it uses the word Lord, and it's the word Adonai. So it's not going to be spelled with all capitals in your in your English translation. Yahweh said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people offer themselves freely in the day of your power. Up to here, uh, and this is my note interjected, up to here Yahweh is honoring someone who is ruler who sits at his right hand. If you listen to the words that we just read, right? So Yahweh says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Yahweh sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. What is a scepter? A scepter is a, the staff of a king he rules with and makes judgment calls, etc. when he sits on his throne, that little short stick. That's his scepter. So Yahweh is sending someone from Zion, from the, the, the shining holy hill, with a scepter to rule. And he says, rule in the midst of your enemies. So your and then he says your people offers themselves freely on the day of your power. This is still Yahweh speaking to somebody. Your people mm-hmm. offer themselves freely on the day of your power. So then going on in verse four, Yahweh has sworn and will not change his mind. So whoever he's speaking to, he says, "You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek." So whoever he's talking to at this point is a priest. You are a priest forever. So at this point, he's a priest. Verse 5, the Lord is at your right hand. This is Lord uh, lowercase. So again, you see this is at uh, Yahweh's right hand. Verse 6, he will execute judgment on the nations. This is the same one who is a priest in verse 4. He will execute judgment on the nations. So this is a king. He's executing a judgment. 
but altogether he's a king priest, just like Melchizedek. He sits at the right hand and he judges the whole earth. Why, why is this the order of Melchizedek? He is a priest and a king at the same time. So order of Melchizedek basically is that, but uh, Hebrews, Hebrews 7 gives us some, and Hebrews 8 gives us some more. Melchizedek means king of righteousness, and he is the king of Salem, which is king of peace. So this being by the Hebrews interpreter, this, this is, of course, all to be understood as uh, allegoric Jesus, of course. All right. He is within, Hebrews explains, he is without father, without mother, so therefore he's without lineage, and he is without beginning or without end. These are some things I used to hear, like a uh, pastor would say, and I thought, Wow, that's a neat way to apply that. And later on, I, you know, got a little bit older and reading the Bible for a bit. <laughs> oh, this is, they're just preaching out of this book back here about this other book up there. Yeah. Hebrews is a great commentary on the Old Testament. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Christ is identified with Melchizedek as having an endless duration of his priesthood. But uh, also in this offering of bread, and excuse me, I'll quit playing with that thing. On the, the <laughs> Uh, Christ is identified in his endless duration of his priesthood because, uh, you know, Hebrews makes a lot of comment about the the priests that are of the line of Aaron. The only problem with them is they keep dying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but, uh, so Christ does not die. He rose from the dead and he is uh, never going to die again. So he is a priest forever. So therefore, part of the order of Melchizedek phrase is, no beginning, no end. He's a perpetual high priest for good. So the bread and the wine thing, though, is uh, I, I started to get into wasting a whole bunch of time looking at bread and looking at wine. <laughs> We've already done some time looking at wine before. Looking at bread, overall, both of them are are blessing. And that's that's for the most part, just to put it simple. Both of them represent blessing, but they also are very easy to look at and say, "Oh, there's communion." I guess we could look at it too and say tithing came before the law. Communion came before the law. Communion, like uh, Christ passes wine and bread around to his disciples, says, This is the new covenant. Well, here's Melchizedek before the old covenant, having bread and wine, communion with Abraham. He gives him a tithe before the, the, the mm-hmm. law, and then he has I communion with him. I didn't see that until just right this minute when I was talking about it. I kept thinking today. What am I going to say about bread and wine? <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool, yeah. Uh, but I, was, I wanted to take a little bit of time and look at some of the what the Jews do as far as honoring patriarchs. Okay. They honor the lines of, let's see, just to narrow this down before we get into it. While the Jews honor the lines of high priests from Aaron, which descended from the tribe of Levi as the priesthood, they descended from Jacob, who descended from Isaac, who descended from Abraham, Abraham, who tithed to Melchizedek. And Abraham receives a blessing from him. So just putting in line uh, that Jews honor Levites, they honor through the Levites on up Aaron and through them on up to the patriarchs to Abraham. And when they refer to Abraham, it's like, Father Abraham, Father Abraham, Father, <laughs> everything they say about him, they, they're always honoring him. Yeah. Almost like uh, like you would hear a Muslim cleric when he's speaking and names the names the name of Muhammad, he would say, praise be upon him. 
Right. Even when they name Jesus or Moses or any of the patriarchs, they would also say the same thing. They take the time to stop and, and say that. So you really see this honor that the Jews give to Abraham, and then Abraham's giving this guy honor. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Matthew 1, the whole genealogy of Christ starts off with David and Abraham. Matthew's constant quoting of Scripture, prophecies, and lineages shows his gospel is addressed to Jewish people specifically. And he goes about referring to how this guy, uh, Abraham, who's so important, he's important to you, but look at what he's doing right here. So Matthew just kind of builds up and lets you know. And the only reason I point that out is just to let you know that this is what they think of him in a way. Uh, Luke 16 this is the rich man and Lazarus when they are in uh, Hades. The rich man who is in torment on the torment side calls out to Father Abraham. Just another thing. And this is also, I was wondering about this. And I, I tried to do a little bit of uh, searching on Abraham's bosom or Abraham's side. I couldn't really find an origin of it as to when it came about. So Jesus is the one speaking the words. So the question to me was, is... Uh, is this a thing that was already in place and that Jesus agrees with? We should honor him, and he addresses him as Father Abraham to be respectful to this, to this old patriarch guy? Yeah. Or is it something that was being used and he didn't necessarily agree with, but he spoke it in this way because it wasn't really hurting doctrinally anything? So he just used it because people would understand it. Yeah. Like I said, I couldn't find the origin of it, so was it nothing at all? And he's the one actually pointing it out and teaching it right then himself. Jesus. Right. Is he the one that's actually bringing it up and starting to refer to it as Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom? I, I, it would probably be before his time, and he was using something that was already accepted, probably. I think. P- things that they were familiar with when yeah. he would say it, yeah. Yeah. Either way, he, he also refers to him as, uh, he's the one telling the story, and he says the rich man calls him Father Abraham, but he's also the one telling the story, so he's also referring to him as Father <laughs> Abraham. All right. Kind of like if, if Luke was recording his words, then Luke is also calling him Father Abraham in a way. Uh, let's see. John 4, the woman at the well, honored the patriarch Jacob. John 8, the Jews honored Father Abraham. The names of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob show up in the New Testament are combined 130 times. So you see in the New Testament being kind of the transition from of Judaism over to Christianity over to the church right. that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob still show up 130 times. Uh, Isaac and Jacob are about 25 apiece. Abraham's all the rest. <laughs> so Esau is three times in the New Testament. Ishmael's not mentioned. <laughs> just just to kind of lay out what the Jews thought of their patriarchs. Do just taking it back, it, it just reminds me that um, you know Abram is such a, a, a huge figure, and it's from him where we get the three most popular uh, monotheistic uh, religions: Christianity, uh, Judaism, and Islam. Mm-hmm. So it's just kind of interesting yeah. that it's from this guy. This this guy has such <clears throat> a influence on three of the religions that exist today. Yeah, uh, in a way, he is. Uh if we go back and look at some of these promises of God to him that his descendants will out outnumber the stars in sand. <laughs> in, in a way, you see, yeah. like it's almost all of mankind in some way is either 
bloodline or spiritually right. descendants or claim to be spiritually descendants of him one way or the other. Uh, so I already mentioned like Levi, according to Hebrews 7, 9, Levi is setting up all their, their respect and honor for their patriarchs. Levi is tithing through Abraham because Abraham's doing it. And, and Levi is thought to be even four generations down as still a part of Abraham in his body as a, right. you know, as a seed almost. So the question that I, I already said, but wanted to work toward when I was studying this out was, uh, did the priest of Levi or the, the, did the priesthood of Levi pay tithes to anyone in the law of Moses and Leviticus six twenty, a 10th of the grain of, uh, I can't read tonight, sorry. That's okay. <laughs> Leviticus 6.20, a tenth of the grain offering at their anointing goes to someone. So when a priest is anointed in that ceremony, they give a tenth of their grain at that point. So who they give it to? And that's, that's Yahweh. I would say an interesting thing about tithing is um, also every third year the Levites um, – give a tithe to foreigners or widows or orphans every third year. Really? Mm-hmm. Where's that at? Deuteronomy 26, 12. Let's see if I can get there. It says, when you have finished paying all your tithe um, of your produce in the third year, which is the year of tithing, giving it to the Le- giving it to the Levite, the foreigners or the sojourner, the fatherless and the widows, so they may eat within your towns and be filled. Um, and the, verse thirteen, then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have I have removed the sacred portion out of my house, and moreover, I have given it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your commandment that you have commanded me. I have not transgressed any of your commandments, nor have I forgotten them. So. I even have some of that underlined and have never paid attention that <laughs> Levites do that every three years. Yeah. So, again, it's, it's you know, God <laughs> building his um, underlining church where, you know, you see an acts where everyone's taking care of one another because um, we need each other. Yeah. Um, we, we have God, but God wants us to encourage one another, he wants us to support one another. Yeah. Um. So it's, he's, you know, you remind me of something we mentioned last week. I think we didn't turn to it and read it. Uh, Deuteronomy fifteen, four. But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God. Be careful to do all his commandments that I command you today. So it goes on from there. That was verse 4, stating there will be no poor among you. And as you keep on going down, verse 10, you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because of this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Verse 11, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. This is, uh, we had talked about this last week for some reason it came up. But one verse says they'll never they'll never be poor among you. Another one says they'll never cease to be poor among you. Because right. God's going to bless you and ask you to give it to somebody who needs it, and he knows you're not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Not a lot's changed. Nope. And, you know, when people see there will be no poor among you, you know, God is an if-then God. If you do this, then this will happen. If you don't do this, then this will happen. That was one of the first things in uh, in Bible college and 
theology is the retribution idea that it was kind of hard for me to get as a New Testament post-cross, you know, grace-receiving Christian. Mm. It was really hard for me to, I catch myself thinking, does that apply all the time? Or is it like in certain cases because grace, right? Right. right. Grace is supposed to be the main rule. Yeah. And, and grace is free, but I catch myself thinking, oh, if if I do this today, then God will such and such tomorrow for me. Yeah. Which is like even Don't though grudge. even though grace is given, it's still if you accept God's son, he yeah. would just you know it's just there's always that um, equation. There's always that <clears throat> he gives you the freedom again to choose. He gives you the freedom to make decisions. He gives you freedom to um, give a tithe or to help the poor or to do whatever. And if you do this, God will bless you and bless the person. If you don't do this, then really you're going to be cursed eventually. Your money's going to be cursed and all yeah. this stuff. And there's going to be poor people among you. So, yeah. Um, so. Yeah. And then after there's poor people among you, they're homeless sitting on the street and you walk by them and you walk around them because you got your shopping bags and you don't want them touching your shopping bags. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, I'm going yeah. too far. <laughs> It's all good. <laughs> okay. Uh, just look at the uh, phrase, God most high. Did you look it out any? Mm-mm. Search it out some? Get back to 14. Genesis 14. Yeah, I got to get back to you. So Genesis 14, 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, he was priest of God most high. 19, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemy into your hands. So just looking, this is one of those things too I want to go find when I read this kind of stuff. This this uh, phrase, God most high, is known from Ugaritic texts in the late Bronze Age. I find that in my, my Jewish study Bible commentary notes but I, I really wish they would tell me which Ugaritic text so I can go look at it And but either way uh, Ugarit was a Canaanite city along the coast of what is now Syria so there in, in, in the Ugaritic text there it's applied to the god El with whom the Lord is often equated in the Tanakh uh, Tanakh being all Old Testament to, to, in our minds God Most High is itself not an uncommon Epithet of the Lord. This is a very double negative type sentence, <laughs> but I'm just writing down like what the note said. In the, uh, that a foreigner should recognize and revere God, the God of Israel, is not unusual in Genesis. So this kind of make a note there that that, that phrase is, is used different places, but it applies right there directly. Uh, let's see, I think it's a verse or two right here later. So, yeah, so he has communion with Melchizedek, Genesis 14, 19, or 18, 19, and 20. By that time, he's had communion and receives a blessing from him, gives him a tenth of everything. Verse 21, the king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord. I have, well, that's the Lord there is all capitalized, so that's. Yahweh. So he's literally, he, he's specifically, I should say, he's specifically calling the name of Yahweh. I have lifted my hand to Yahweh, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. 
gives him the same exact title that Melchizedek just gave him. Hmm. So he is. Uh, this is the only verse where the where the name of Yahweh and this title is all together in one spot. But here's Abraham saying, uh, "I agree with what Melchizedek's calling him." <laughs> I have a movie at home. It's uh, one, you know, one of the Bible movies. But in this scene here, uh, and it's not, of course, in Scripture, but they, I think it's a really neat scene when he walks away from Melchizedek after this guy shows up, brings him his servants bring out wine and uh, bread, and they have communion. You see this. Uh, brotherly love and they really they just met but they really know that they're on the same page they share this communion Melchizedek turns around and his, his whole entourage they walk off and when Abraham turns around Sarah's kind of looking at him and she has the kind of smile on her face like a a wife who has known her husband forever and knows how he feels inside without having to speak words but the smile on her face says you met a man just now who is exactly like you and you are very happy. And as your wife, I'm very happy about it. It was, it was just a really, it's a really warm, uh, small scene, but I always picture that when I see that, when I read through this area right here. So what do you think, you know, again, we don't really hit the, um, lineage of priests until Moses and Aaron, so why what what make what makes you think um, Melchizedek is a priest before the the era the Aaronic uh, law or Aaronic priesthood really comes into play? Um, besides Hebrews breaking down the changing of old covenant to new covenant, that there is a changing of priesthood. Mm-hmm. So it kind of sets up and lays out this priesthood, which is evolving through time going through the Mosaic Covenant, being going through rigid law and sacrificial system, ending up at the cross and being fulfilled there and then changing into a new covenant. And going forward, it also goes backwards through that and points backwards to Melchizedek and says, hey, look, he's already doing something that Christ is now doing before the Mosaic law was put in place. Other than that, though, this is kind of uh, extra-biblical thinking of mine. Putting some pieces together from the Bible, though, we've said this before, like uh, in discussing languages from Babylon, mm-hmm. when they got off the boat, they spoke whatever they spoke. Let's right. say English, just for our cigar conversation. They spoke English when they got off the boat. They had kids taught their kids English. They had grandchildren, and they could taught them English, because that's what everybody was speaking. Right. And they naturally hand down what they have. Socially, culturally, they hand down what they have. They can only hand down who they are to their kids. So when their kid uh, leaves all their toys out in the living room, if that's not acceptable, they say, that's not good. Go clean them up. When they don't clean them up, they get a spanking. What they're doing is they're programming their kid with our culture. These things are acceptable. These things are not acceptable. They can only give them what they are. So they give them all the stories they have. They give them the language they have. They teach them how to make the foods that they know how to make. They, If they have any songs or sing stuff, they whistle. They teach their kids the ones they know. They don't teach them the ones they don't know. Right. <laughs> so uh, where was I working with this? <laughs> no. no. Uh, about Melchizedek. I was asking about Melchizedek. Um, why okay. do you think he's a yeah. priest? So they're going to also hand down the stories they have. 
Right. Sorry, having a dumb moment. That no, you're fine. <laughs> but they're going to hand down the stories they have. Noah's going to tell his sons, "Remember what just happened." Tell his grandkids, "This is what happened." You tell your great grand. You tell the great grandkids what happened. And as time goes on, we know that some decided to go other directions, like Nimrod, which we already talked about and everything. But in the time of Nimrod and people splitting and going different directions on the map. And them adopting different things, different uh, names for gods, adopting different gods. Mm-hmm. We know that what we studied when we looked at uh, the flood itself, that everybody's got some story like it. They might have changed names, etc., and changed details, but they still have a story similar to it or like it. So this is where my kind of uh, leap in thinking goes beyond the pages of Scripture that I think explain Melchizedek and also some things in uh, – Numbers with Balaam and in Job, towards the end of Job, the sacrificial system that Job does Mm -hmm. is almost identical to what Balaam does. But somewhere in the land, there still exists this idea of a one God system. Sure. Bedtime. (laughs) There still exists this idea of a one God system. And in my mind, there is possibly still a almost a, a stronghold or a holdout somewhere like you would think of the, the Dead Sea Scrolls. Like the, the Essenes who lived in the Qumran caves, they were preserving the best they could, what they knew to be the truth. They were preserving, and I'm thinking possibly that Melchizedek is, maybe he truly had a lineage of some kind. He is in a long line of some kind. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking he's actually the guy running the show over at Salem, and Salem's actually possibly a, a one-god culture type city or maybe a seminary of sorts or Bible's college in yeah. a way. And I, and I know Hebrews uh, helps us explain Melchizedek's priesthood. So like my question probably will, if, if you're not talking about Hebrews or, you know, you're limited on what it talks about. Um, but you, you have to kind of, I guess use your imagination or use your own thoughts to kind yeah. of come up with something because, <clears throat> the reason why I asked that is because um, my mind was the purpose of the priest was to do certain ordinances and certain things, which didn't exist. It didn't need a priest yet because, I mean, it did in a sense of the sac- you needed well, the sacrifices. Well, put it real simple. What is the job of a priest? To be the communicator between the people and God. Right. He's the middle yeah. guy. Yeah. He's the middle man between the two. I don't think because there isn't a law that there isn't a need for the middle guy. Gotcha. I, and I guess that's I, I guess that would tie in with what I'm saying. I think about a uh, Salem University Bible College, whatever. <laughs> that, that there would be this place where they were still trying to uh, teach that this is what truly happened. No matter what Nimrod and Gilgamesh and all of them say. This is what actually truly happened with Moses, or excuse me, with Noah. And I'm going to retain this story and keep teaching about the one true God. And as they teach people and spread out, these teachings or these stories come to people like Balaam. These teachings and these stories come to people like Job and like his friends who were not Jewish. Balaam was not Jewish. How did this exist already in the land before Israel came back up out of Egypt? Right. It, it, the, the the one God story is still existing somewhere, somehow. Yeah. I just think uh, he is, and maybe in a sense of being the go-between between God and man, but by him being, quote-unquote, 
Professor Melchizedek, <laughs> he's doing what he's supposed to by teaching another generation who the living God is, who God most high is, right. and what he's about. And of course, we don't know, you know, if if God is doing anything through Melchizedek and Salem, meaning is God yeah. speaking to those people through Melchizedek, it doesn't give us that um, yeah. information. But because 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 of Hebrews and its references to Melchizedek, we can only assume that what's what's taking place in Genesis here is is that Melchizedek is stamped by God as a priest of the Most High, as a priest of Himself, and He is that you know that figure that that priest lineage that Jesus came to fulfill. Yeah. So. So the the that kind of answers priest individually. Mm-hmm. What I want to shoot down for a minute was the angle of king priest, the combination of the two, okay. because it's through it's through the Bible in different ways. Um, it, it's some really neat things too. You don't think about even though you read it. And if I were to ask you questions, your own answers to the questions that you already know would lead you to some of these answers. So like. Gabriel told Mary that her relative was pregnant. Who's her relative? <laughs> okay, so what tribe is lineage? Uh, what tribe of lineage is Elizabeth her relative from? Are you asking me? Yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah. sorry. Yeah, I'm like, um, I'm like looking at you blankly while you so, look back at me blankly. <laughs> sorry, I don't know if you wanted me to answer. Well, that's what I'm saying. You know the answers to these questions, <laughs> right? So that means that Mary is related to the Levites. Right. Joseph is related through what? What tribe? I know this. Well, Matthew 1 and and Luke 3 both are trying to show the lineage of Jesus from Adam to Abraham to David. To Joseph, right. To Joseph to say... Here is Jesus's uh, the family that he's being born into. Here is his right to the throne in Judah, through Judah. And then you got Mary. If her relative, she's married to a man from Judah, and her relative is a, she's a daughter of Aaron. It calls her specifically not just a Levite. She's not just from the tribe of Levite or Levi. She's a daughter of Aaron. So it's real specific there. So that means that Jesus's earthly family, his parents, are from the priest tribe and the king tribe. Hmm. So another one I like a lot is, uh, let's see, it is Aaron and Elisheba. Aaron, of course, is, is uh, Moses' brother, right? He's the first high priest of Israel. So Exodus 6, 16 through 23 gives us a lineage of Moses and Aaron. And it mentions uh, Aaron's wife, Elisheba, who is the sister of Nashon. Exodus 6. This is also one of the few places, too, you're going to be able to turn and find uh, anybody outside. Once you get past uh, the lineages back in Genesis, was it 5 and 11? Where you've actually got ages of the people's generations right here. So you can you can walk your way through the Egyptian exile if you're doing timeline. You can come here with Moses and Aaron and work your way through the Egyptian timeline that way. 
So Levi being 137 years old in verse 16, Kohath 133 in uh, verse 18, Amram and his wife Jochebed, his father's sister. So Amram married his father's sister. Amram is Aaron and Moses' dad. Aaron and Moses' mom was their great aunt. <laughs> anyway, the point being, verse 23, this is Exodus six twenty-three. Aaron took as his wife, Elisha, by the daughter of Amenadab and the sister of Nashon. So the question then is, who is Elisheba? Where's she from? Ruth 4, 18 through 20. Where do they put Ruth at? <laughs> Another one of those little ones you can flick past real fast. It's only got four chapters. Is it four chapters or three chapters? It's four. Four. It's so a four, 18 through 20. Uh, and, and your heading may be like mine, the genealogy of David. These are the generations of Perez. Perez was the son of Judah, right? Perez was the father, or excuse me, Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. So you've got in this lineage here from Judah through Perez down to David, Amenadab who had Nashon. So we're still working towards that for a second. Uh, Numbers 2, 3 calls Nashon a chief of Judah. First Chronicles 2, 10 calls Nashon a prince of Judah. And back here where we first started, though, in uh, Exodus 6, 23, we got Aaron taking his wife, Elisheba, who was the sister of Nashon. We're just narrowing down, basically saying Nashon definitely is from Judah. He's from the king tribe before David. So if we do this and you kind of what I've done in my notes, is kind of make two columns. The top of the column starts with the name Jacob and then two columns under him. Each one starts with two of his sons, Levi and Judah. So if you kind of number them, one Levi and one Judah, Levi has Kohath number two. His third uh, row would be Amram. His fourth row would be Moses and Aaron. So you're thinking in generations there, fourth generation after Jacob through Levi. If we go through the Judah column, if Judah is number one, number two would be Perez. Three is Hezron. Four is Ram. Five is Amenadab. Six is Nashon, and his sister was Elisheba. So Aaron married a girl two generations younger than himself. <laughs> he is a Levite, of course, and he married a girl from Judah. It, now, this is one thing I was looking at this morning. I had, just hadn't put together yet. Aaron marries a girl from Judah. His sons are mixed from the king and priest tribe. All high priests are supposed to be descendants of the first high priest, Aaron. So all high priests of, Jew, of Israel, from Aaron on, are a mix of a descendant who is uh, the, that first generation who are all mixed Levi-Judah tribe together. Mm-hmm. They're mm-hmm. married through these two back here. So the whole priesthood of, of Israel from then on is always a mix between Judah and Levi. Which is, you know, always what we're trying to work towards in, in finding Jesus being the, the great high priest and the king of kings 
him playing both roles and both parts. He descends <laughs> from that, and then there's his mom and or mom and earthly dad being his his link to both tribes, also all in himself. That's crazy. That's pretty cool. So Joshua, the high priest, and the branch. Zechariah three and Zechariah six has some uh, some cool stuff to to show a king priest tie. I'm not going to find where they put Zechariah at. <laughs> I just have to type it. I'm there. I'm using paper tonight. <laughs> I'm trying to get back to my roots more, like, you know, like holy people do. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Actually, I've got the notes typed right here already. <laughs> I can just you, look at them. <laughs> you, you destroyed trees, and I I put people to work. Oh, okay. They made the computers. So. People at the uh, tree factory had to cut them down and make the paper at the paper factory. Yeah, but we're losing oxygen because of that. <laughs> no, that's because of global warming. <laughs> you you anti tree. All, uh, all the carbon monoxide we're making. <laughs> that's because of overpopulation. Oh, and on and on and on. And on and on we go. Uh, let's see. I tried to go through and grab out the, the the main parts of it. I hope it didn't get too confusing, but just going through Zechariah 3, Zechariah 6. Uh, so an angel is showing Zechariah around. He takes him to a place, uh, Zechariah 3, 1. Then he, if you go back and look at Zechariah 2, 1, this is the man with the measuring line. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest. So you you can establish right there Joshua is a high priest. Whenever we talk about Joshua, we're talking about a high priest. In the time frame that Zechariah is also, some of the names that are mentioned throughout his book ties this with Joshua son of Jehozadak. Or this would be, in, you, in the other writings usually, like Ezra and stuff, he's Yeshua, not Joshua. Um, then he showed me the, uh, showed me Joshua the high priest. And... The angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua. So the angel looks at him and says, hey, let's go look at Joshua right quick. I want to show you something. And when they get there, the angel looks over at Joshua and says, I want to assure you something. This says the Lord of hosts, if you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts. Joshua's a high priest. He's being told he's going to rule. It does say the Lord, the, the house of the Lord, so I would actually assume that's really the, the temple. Mm-hmm. But uh, you will rule my house and have charge of my courts. So in a sense there, he's still having, having charge of the courts. He still has a position to make judgment calls on what's happening with people, and, you know, civil matters or whatever. He's still running the show with what he's being told there. Here now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends are a sign Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. What happens throughout this passage right here, though, is that Satan comes to accuse Joshua to the Lord. And that's when the Lord looks over and says, I rebuke you. And let me tell you what's going on. He's with me. <laughs> he looks over at Joshua and says, he's got dirty clothes, tells the angels, get him some clean clothes and put them on him. Joshua, you and your friends who are with you are a sign. What's just happened? Because I'm assuming, I am assuming, but... It looks like his friends are just like him. What he's just now done is says, you got dirty clothes and you're with me, so I'm going to give you clean clothes. Hmm. So all of his friends are there like him. Most likely he has just said, I'm the one that's going to make y'all clean, and y'all, y'all are now a sign for me. 
but he turns immediately. He doesn't really say anything that they are going to do to be a sign, but he turns the whole conversation like uh, the Bible does sometimes and says, look over here. I'll show you something else. <laughs> but it is related. It turns immediately and says, you and your friends are a sign. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. This is not about Joshua and his friends, really. This is about the branch. For behold, on a stone I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. So he basically tells Joshua, you and your friends, you are going to be a sign. He just now said, you got dirty clothes. You're with me. I'm going to give you clean clothes. We got a real good picture here of grace and salvation and turns immediately to the conversation to the branch. His servant, the branch, is coming. And he says, I'm going to remove all the iniquity, all the sin from the land in one day. How's he going to do that? <laughs> so it's a real good picture of the cross there. Um, I, I didn't take the time to look up. Let's do it right quick. What's the word for engrave right here? Engrave the inscription. P-T-H. P-T-T-H? P-T-T-H? P-T-T-H. P-T-T-H is to open... I'm just curious, is that the same word in Psalm 22? It's not. Most of the time, uh, I've seen this for a couple of different ones, the word for engrave is uh, related to digging or piercing. Or the word for piercing is related to engraving in inscription. I'm just looking at it, and I was thinking this morning, that's why I meant to look at it. What's the what's the words for inscription and the, the words for uh, engraved, but there's different things I've seen where those this idea is related to piercing. Like in Psalm 22, there's a word there that's basically they pierce my hands and feet. But you go back and search the word and its roots, it's related to engraving, like an engraving tool. And you think about a big, huge stone, or excuse me, a big iron piece engraving in a stone, you got a hammer like a big nail and you're you're hammering this something out to dig out of it. But in context of Psalm twenty two, it's obviously a picture of the future crucifixion. Yeah. Let's so let's follow the branch over to chapter six. So he's he's left it basically said, My my servant the branch is coming and I'm going to remove sin from this land in a single day. So Zechariah six and nine, and the word of the Lord came to me. Take from the exiles, I'm going to leave a little bit out here just to get them to the main point. Take from the exiles who have arrived from Babylon, take from them silver and gold, make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. What are they setting on the head of a priest? What do you do with a crown, right? What's right. that for? So this, this is what I wanted to come here for is, is to show the mix of this concept. So set the crown on the head of Joshua, the high priest, and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. So he's telling Joshua again, even though he just put a crown on his head, he says, Look, here's the branch. <laughs> it's not really about Joshua again either. <laughs> uh, For he shall branch out from his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. 
It looks to me kind of here like, uh, I think we've talked about the mini Bible before when he, it's, it's in Philippians how it describes almost the Last Supper, but it says he left his place of honor. He got up from his, his throne, yeah. took off his robes, came down here just like a servant, and then went and returned to his place and put his robes back on, same as he did at the Last Supper washing feet. But right here, we kind of see he's coming out of his place. He's going to branch out from his place, and he will build the temple of the Lord. Was temple of the Lord New Testament style, if this is pointing forward towards Jesus, how can it be looked at? He's going to build the temple of the Lord like Jesus builds the church of God. Right. Uh, it is, this is uh, Zechariah 6, verse 13, it is he who shall bear royal honor. So we have a, a royal line there. And he shall sit and rule on his throne. We have a royal idea there, a king idea. And there shall be a priest on his throne. Is there two people sitting on his throne, or is there one person sitting on his throne? Is the question then, right? And the council of peace shall be between shall be between them both. Both who? <laughs> <laughs> I looked at this for you know a long time, not not ever thinking like. What does that mean? Because everything else to me looks like there's a priest sitting on your throne and you're the king and you're sitting on your throne. So you must be the king and the priest at the same time. But it hit me one day, the council of peace shall be between them both, the offices. There's a peace brought between the office of king and priest. And the crown, which is something for a king, shall be in the temple of the Lord. And the temple of the Lord is where priests do their business. Yeah, so you have a constant mixing here of mm. of both of them, both of the offices of king and priest. I looked a little bit too at uh, Gedalia and Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel will be the same time frame kind of as Zechariah right here. He's the governor of Judah. He is also in the lineage of Jesus. So if Zerubbabel is in the lineage of Jesus, he is governor of Judah after the Babylonian exile. For some reason, he's not called a king. He does not receive the king title when he goes back. It's almost, uh, it, it looks to me like the uh, steward idea in Lord of the Rings. When the king in exile, Aragorn, is mm-hmm. not come back to claim his throne yet, and there's this long-time prophecy that the king will return, so the third movie's or the third book is called The Return of the King. Who's sitting on the throne when he gets back? Who's ruling the whole time? A line of stewards. There is a I wonder if I remember right, there was a uh, according to you know Tolkien's writing, his imagination, there was a, a lineage of stewards, but they are not holding the title of king. And when the, the actual lineage or someone from the lineage of a king shows back up, they gotta get up and re- relinquish the throne. Yeah, but uh, I mean, there's some there's some fiction thrown in there for you, <laughs> <laughs> but but that's the same concept. Uh, Zerubbabel comes back and rules in Judah, but does not take the, the the name of king or title of king. But he is in the lineage of Jesus, so he is from the tribe of Judah. He helps. This is the funny thing, though. He helps in a priestly type duty to build the altar. He works side by side with uh, Yeshua, the high priest, and they make an offering. This is in uh, Ezra 3.7. And then Ezra 3.8-13, he assists in building the second temple. 
So king lines and priest lines build the house of God together as one. They work side by side. They're real careful to never, they never call Zerubbabel a king of any kind, but he's, he's kind of like a steward position. Before him, though, there is the same thing. After the last king of Judah, there is a governor that's set up, Gedaliah. Nebuchadnezzar sets him up, if you remember his name. He doesn't take the title of king either. And it's kind of odd because this is uh, in the end of 2 Kings 25. It's just kind of odd because Nebuchadnezzar has set up in the past a king. Why didn't he set another king up? I don't know. But he did still choose a guy who was in the lineage of Judah and sets him up as governor. So Gedaliah, let's see. His dad was Ahikam. What was his dad name? Shaphan. The second Kings 22, or excuse me, 25, 22. So you see there, um, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had left. He appointed Gedaliah, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, as governor. Not to go through all of it, but I, I did spend some time on a rabbit trail this morning. Jeremiah, when Nebuchadnezzar sends Nebuzaradan, his uh, general, go find Jeremiah that we've heard about, who's talked about us. He's told the king and the people repeatedly to give in to Babylon, and we're not going to hurt you. We're just taking you into our land. But you have no choice. <laughs> He's the one that has consistently preached that. Go find him. And basically, if he wants to come to Babylon with us, tell him that we'll take care of him and we'll bless his socks off. And if he don't want to and he wants to stay here, tell him that's okay. He can just stay here. Whatever he wants. Just let him, let him be free. And it says that uh, he goes to Mizpah to Gedaliah. Well, he's also been taken care of in the past by Gedaliah's father, Ahikam. He's also, Jeremiah is present around the time of Josiah taking the throne. Josiah takes the throne at 13 years old, and he makes this major move to uh, remodel and, and rejuvenate the, the, the temple, take off all the things that are rotten and need to be painted, etc., replace that wood, put new paint on. But Jeremiah has been preaching basically to Josiah for five years. Well, so you see his presence there. And then there's one of the guys who finds the uh, the book of the law back in the gold treasury in the temple. One of those guys is Shaphan. So this is Gedaliah's grandfather. You just you just see here this, these guys that are very involved in uh, with the king. They're in the tribe of Judah. And they're they're present through all this and holding titles like governor, etc. Hmm. There's a whole lot of stuff you don't really need to know. I just wondered did you know it? <laughs> well, it's interesting stuff. It helps helps to bridge the connection of the priest king relationship, and then eventually going back through Jesus to Melchizedek. So yeah, I think the thing that interests me about it is that. We look at it from a New Testament perspective. We read in the New Testament that Jesus is the great high priest, and he's the king of kings, lord of lords. And then we see some stuff here and there, because I want to end with towards this direction, what the church really is. But then we don't go back and say, oh, this this is not a new thing. This <laughs> is actually God's original stuff, right? We're just, we're just finding it out. Yeah. So next one was to look at, obviously, uh, since we already touched on his lineages, Jesus the high priest, or Jesus the great high priest, Hebrews, and just pointing out that these terminologies are used to establish who he is. Hebrews 3.1, Hebrews 4.14, and you finish out 14 on through 
And then Hebrews 8, 1 through 13. In Hebrews 8, uh, it talks about the permanent priesthood of Jesus, and it ties that to a covenant change, which we, we made reference to a while ago. But the covenant change being from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, to the New Covenant, the New Testament. And what that New Testament hinges on is Jesus' uh, blood and flesh, the communion, right. which is what we you know started at a while ago with Melchizedek, the bread and the wine. Representing the, I, I, that really is neat to me. I need, I need more time to sit and think about that to really be in awe of it that it's in the Old Testament like that because I haven't seen it until a while ago and just the lights come on. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> the King of Kings phrase. This phrase only shows up in the Old Testament, by the way, referring to Gentiles, Gentile kings, three times. Artaxerxes once, Nebuchadnezzar twice. I think it's really interesting, and we haven't even gotten near to touching on it, how often some concept we think is Jewish, Jewish, Jewish. You go back and look at the Old Testament, like, um, that only applies to Gentiles. <laughs> or it'd be something like that. It's like, oh, that's including everybody. But this is this is one of those funny phrases that our Jewish Messiah, who comes in through his death and resurrection, creates something called the church. And the church is a gathering of he's a he's basically a, a resurrected Jewish king over a mixed Jewish and Gentile church <laughs> body, and he takes the title of King of Kings <laughs> before the book is over, which comes only from Gentile kings. First uh, Timothy six fifteen calls either, and I've looked through it and looked through it. How the grammar reads is funny. He's either calling God by this title, the King of Kings, or he's calling Jesus by this title. First Timothy six fifteen, if you're gonna look for it there. And it hurts even worse because it starts on one page and ends on another, so you have to flip the page in the middle of your thinking. <laughs> <laughs> not me. I can all see it all in one. Oh, that's thing. right, you're not killing trees today. <laughs> Because you can back up right there a verse or so and try to follow the grammar through. All the the way to the beginning of 13, I believe. Yeah. I kind of tend to put it on Jesus just because he's talking about the appearing of the Lord. At the proper time. Because this is in the presence of the Father. And he's talking about the appearing of Jesus Jesus, who is the blessed and only sovereign King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because I would think the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is uh, is a human humanistic term and not necessarily a heavenly term. Okay, I think I stretched my thinking into the, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is if you go to the very top and descend down, then downward would include the world of men, but all the way at the top includes God. I just, oh. I know you don't disagree with that God has all sovereign power over it. Right, no. But I see your, I see your division there in saying that it seems like a, a man, a human term. Yeah, just like, you know, Jesus refers to himself as a son of man. I mean, he's, he places certain terms on himself. Yeah. 
uh, to tell the world, hey, uh, you know, pointing to one one ruler of of all creation of all people, because you know, there's some people that believe in multiple gods or, or um, believe in these um, powers, you know, like the, the you know the various powers that even, right now the UN powers are so to speak, and we we don't know any existence outside of our earth though some people want to <clears throat> hope that there's maybe alien technology or other life outside in some other galaxy but this is all we know so i tend to think it's pointing towards um and everything that you know and everything that um we can understand with all the gods that we want to think of or with all the um kings and rulers of this world there's one king who rules them all and there's one god who rules them all and that's Jesus. And and this is and and he will be proven to be that king and to be that Lord and 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 in the presence of the God you know himself, um, that he will appear again to show that he is ruler of all. But uh, that's just yeah I will take I don't disagree with it at all. That's why I say I just kept reading through that thinking it's there. But who do I apply it back to grammatically within the sentence? But it looks to be like, yeah, probably both. <laughs> Which makes as plenty of sense, too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, I, you can't See, really if you get keep on it. reading it out, no. though, uh, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the king of kings and lord of lords, who alone has immortality, well, that's still both. <laughs> who dwells in unapproachable light, well, that's still both. Yeah. Whom no one has ever seen or can see. See, that starts going towards God there. Right. Unless you want to, I mean, that whole, well, that's a whole different podcast, I guess. Well, we'll get to there when we get to <laughs> Jacob. Yeah. So. Yeah. I think I think that'll open a little bit of a, not a can of worms, but some. Um, open a very small can. Yeah. Maybe like a four ounce can of worms. And we'll, so we'll come, up, we'll come back to this verse. <laughs> I think we'll come back to this verse. Uh, next I had. Okay, just kind of bleeding off of that, Lord, Lords, and King, Kings. Um, Revelation seventeen fourteen calls the Lamb the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Revelation nineteen eleven through 16 is about the rider on the white horse, and it calls him the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. It just flips the order, and it refers to him as the Word of God. So bookending this on both sides in the first chapter of John, this is something I've, I've asked a, uh, a Jehovah's Witness pastor. I went to work on their phone line one day, and uh, when I left, you know, I was out at my van, and I'm closing my job out. When you when you see a phone man sitting in his van, he really is doing something he's got to do. <laughs> just, he's consumed by the computer that he's, this company is forced him to live on. Yeah. Okay, so I'm out there doing that, and he, he comes out there to bring me some Watchtower publications. And... Uh, can I interest you in some of these? No, sir, you can't. <laughs> whenever, whenever Jehovah's Witness offer me those, I always say, uh, I used to say, no, thank you, but I thought I need to tell them why. So I started saying, uh, no, I read the Bible myself. I'm a believer, and I do not accept any additions to the Word of God, and I don't, I'm, I've read your stuff. I don't want it. <laughs> So I don't want those additions in my in my thinking. I'm not going to spend time reading them, studying that. All right. But uh, usually that will spark them to want to have a conversation because they think you're wrong and yeah, you so, don't know the whole story. Though. Yeah. So you, I, this is one of the questions I had asked him. Like, 
uh, I said, do you, do you believe in math? I, I think I basically asked him that. Do you believe in math? Like, yeah. I said, so like in algebra, like if A equals B and B equals C, doesn't A equal C? He says, yeah, and he, but he knew I was leading him into something, so he wasn't really wanting to agree to it. I said, so if A equals B and B equals C and C equals D and D equals E, then A must also equal E, right? He said, maybe it does in math. I said, well, if something is something and that something is something else, then the first something is also the third something. It's just a matter of grammatically we say it is. That means it really is the same thing. He didn't want to go with it, so he was kind of like, what are you getting at? <laughs> but John 1.1, 1, 1, uh, this is John the Apostle writing about Jesus, calling him the Word of God, and he says the Word of God is God. And then by the end of the chapter, he's quoting John the Baptizer and says he sees the Lamb of God and says, behold, the Lamb of God takes, or excuse me, he sees Jesus. He says, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. So he's identifying Jesus as the Lamb. This is still the same author, John the Apostle. Turn over to Revelation, John or Revelation. Right. John the Baptist sees Jesus, says, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. Turn over to John, uh, John's Revelation. 17, the Lamb of God is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. 19, the King, King, Lord, Lords is the Word of God. Turn back over to John 1, the Word of God is God. Is God. So the Lamb, or excuse me, starting from the very beginning, Jesus is God. If you lay it all out, this is some of those right there that's, that, that I wanted to get through that since we were just looking at uh, Jesus being a king. So we've established he's a priest, we've established he's a king. Who's next? We are. Christians, little Christ. Yeah, we're Christ anointed. We're supposed to be little anointed ones. We're supposed to be little versions of Jesus. So if he is a king and he is a priest, we should be little kings and little priests. I, I, I'm not sure so much either that I think we've discussed it for you and I that we should actually be priests right now. That we don't really have a guarantee that we get to be kings right now. <laughs> I think we have talked about that before, but. Yeah. If we have it, I'm I'm saying that now. <laughs> That's my thinking on it. And and I guess I'm going back to the uh, when I asked you a while ago, what's the the job of a, a priest, the go between between God and man? That's really our only job right now is to keep bringing God to people and bringing people to God. And later on, he say, he will say, uh, what's the wording in Revelation twenty, the twenty or nineteen. Twenty. Then I saw a twenty uh, verse four. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those whom the authority to judge was committed. Does that say all Christians are sitting on thrones beside Jesus? Nope. To those whom the authority to judge was committed, whoever Jesus, God, or the Holy Spirit says this one ought to be on a throne. He did well in life with what we gave him. Let's put him on a throne over here in this city. This next one walks in. He says, this one's saved. You can pass. <laughs> next one comes in. He says, you did really good with what we gave you. We got two cities over here for you. 
I mean, it looks to me just in the wording there, it does not say every single Christian who's saved, who has salvation, who's going to enter heaven. Yes, not every single one is going to end up on a throne. Yeah. But if we do what the priest's job is, right, we should end up on the throne because we'll be doing obediently what we're supposed to be doing. Well, it just goes back to what Paul talks about is at the judgment, you know, if it's just uh, what hay and uh, rubble or whatever he calls it. Hay and stubble. Hay and stubble. Yeah. That it just burns up. It doesn't, it doesn't mean you're not going to heaven. It just means the work you did, you're not receiving um, rewards, so to speak. I like that part that talks about the inner heaven smelling like smoke. That's, that's how I always sum it up to remember it because it, it really has a good idea picture to me. I was I picture a guy, you know, his tiptoes are on the very edge of a of the the other side that he's just gotten across, and there's flames behind him, and all of his shirt and everything is behind him is smelling like smoke because all the smoke's coming right up, and somebody's having to reach out from heaven to, to pull him on in. I said, you barely made it in here, buddy. You smell like smoke. <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 that's your marking, just like Cain. Your mark for, yeah. for smell of smoke for eternity. Yeah, there's that guy. <laughs> he just barely made it. Uh, so looking at a couple of verses that we are uh, kings and priests, First Peter 2, 9, we're a royal priesthood. Royal, of course, is associated with kings, priest, priesthood associated with being a priest. Um. I didn't remember this. This was uh, Yahweh's original purpose for Israel, though, in Exodus 19.6. You know, you look through your own Bible and you see notes that you've written down like cross-references. You think, <laughs> I don't know what that says over there. But while you're reading it, normally you don't take time to go flip over and see it. Okay, so here's uh, Exodus 19.6. Uh, of course, it's God speaking to Israel. They just came out of Egypt. And you shall know. Uh, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So he's telling Moses to tell the people that. Hmm. If they're going to be a kingdom of priests, and the job of priest is to bring people to God, the original purpose of Israel was to bring all the nations to Yahweh God. Yeah. Next. To be a, to be a witness. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see, looking at, uh, back in Revelation 1, 6, we are a kingdom of priests. Revelation five ten, a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign. So these priests are supposed to reign. So you got more priests that are ruling, and it's talking about uh, the church again. And then back here in, in Revelation 20, 4 through 6 again, priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him. I still stand on what I was saying a second ago. That 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 caps off that section, but it still looks like the ones that have been committed to rule, well, they'll get the rule, and the other ones don't. Yeah, not every single one is just being given it. I mean, I do kind of wonder. I mean, you're not. I mean, I guess you're going to be ruling over a people because it's going to be a city, and we're going to be working, doing jobs. But yeah, it'd be kind of. I don't know how much ruling will be actually done. How much ruling can one man do? You know, because I mean, you, you're not going to be running for. You're not going to be running again in a couple of years. You're not going to have to deal with health care. You're not going to have to do with social security. <laughs> I mean, and no one's going to like you know bring in guns and shoot up people. I mean, it's just yeah. You're not going to have a police force, et cetera. So, but I think it's more probably just a reward for what they've done, not necessarily a position that they're in. 
Well, uh, if it's not some of the things you said it's not, what do you think it is then? Organization of the work? Probably. I would say so. Because, I mean, if you if you look at the organization of the church, um, you know, they all did their part, but they did it with a, a willing heart. You know, they, yeah. didn't get, they didn't get mad that apostles for... Um, you know, hey, you guys wait on tables. We're gonna go pray. They didn't get mad at them going to pray. I mean, that was that was just their job. And um, Israelites. So what's happened? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. But Israelites, you know, you get the same thing. I mean, there were some that were complaining and grumbling, but yeah, um, they wanted someone to rule over them. They wanted someone to. But I mean, you know, they didn't, you know, hey, Aaron, we, we want to be a priest, you know. Um, so there's different positions that um, I think maybe the king just kind of tells us or, or so I don't know. I don't know. I'll tell you what I'm going to do, though. If we get to build stuff, I'm going to stretch wood. You know that piece that you cut that you go put in place what you had cut it for and you cut it too short? If you ever cut something too long, you can go recut it again. If you cut it too short, you just wasted a whole piece of wood. <laughs> I'm going to stretch wood that day. Would there be any <laughs> supplies of wood? There should be. Yeah. But the one you got, though, I'm putting the. I'm trying to put a door frame on that new door of building at the house in the basement. And the way that's going to be, if I could put the framing out, you know, a quarter inch on both sides, well, I already cut the uh, the top piece, which should meet both of those sides at 45s. If I could stretch it about a quarter inch, I could still use it, but I can't. <laughs> so <laughs> I either got to go back to Lowe's and buy a whole brand new piece, which I can't. There's no reason to do that. Or I got to gotta whittle around other things that are there and make it make things fit. <laughs> I just think that while it goes, like if I hadn't have done this already, and then you said that like jobs, I'm thinking, I hope I get to build stuff. Wait a minute. I'm going to stretch wood. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what my job is going to be. I'm probably going to deliver mail. <laughs> I don't know what, I don't know what the letters will say, but I mean, I'm sure it's something. Bills. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you didn't pay your bill. Well, what kind of bills are going to be in heaven? I don't know. <laughs> There's so many things about it. I mean, we were, I wasn't planning on getting on heaven, but yeah. There's so many things about it when you think about it and just sit and try to imagine. I don't have a hill of beans how that's going to work. How is this part of myself going to be fulfilled if I don't have what if I I mean, we are going to have work, but let's say we didn't have work. The part of me that does want to uh, imagine things and create things and yeah. put things together. How's that part of me going to be answered? We're not going to be bored and we're not going to be tired. Are you bored now ever? Uh, sometimes. Yeah. I can't really name a time I'm ever bored. Really? Even when I have nothing to do, I have things to think. Well, that's true. I guess I'm thinking of boredom as in you're just like kind of not, your body's not doing anything, but your mind's still thinking, your mind's yeah. still wondering. But yeah, yeah. When I, when I don't have something to do or I am not doing something, if I do have something to do, I'm just not doing it. <laughs> sitting, I'm still always thinking, and I enjoy sitting and thinking. But don't you think with the th over the thousands of years, I mean, we're going to come back to this earth, it's going to be kind of crowded. <laughs> 
No, because all those people are going to be in hell, so it'll, it'll make room. <laughs> There's only going to be like 144,000 here. <laughs> right. We got a bigger art van. <laughs> are you one of the 144? No. No. <laughs> those are Jewish virgins. Male. <laughs> they won't get the mail. They won't get in the mail? Nope. <laughs> Why not? Um, they won't be there. <laughs> <laughs> Where are we going with any of this? I don't, I don't know. know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm trying to figure out why Jewish virgin males don't get any mail. I don't know either. Because <laughs> you're not going to deliver it. That's right. I'm just not going to. <laughs> I'm just not going to do my job. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good way to get fired. I wonder if you get fired in heaven. You'll probably just move to a different job. Maybe. But everybody will know your name everywhere you go anyway. Yeah. Oh, there's a mark who got fired from the post office. That's another thing. We're all going to know each other. Yeah. Even people in in the old, that's one thing that you know. There's been so many people, um, stories that we've re, that we read in the Bible that are stinking interesting. That yeah. you know you want to, hey, fill me in on this detail because it didn't record it, or you know, tell me about this. Or you did record it, and it's odd, and yeah. I, I don't yeah. know what you're talking about. Ezekiel, what's up with the, some of the things you just? You know, hey, what, what, what went through your mind when you What's shaved up with the your... bread, man? <laughs> <laughs> oh. But, uh, you know, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with that. I don't either, but... Oh, but, uh, you know, we'll see people that, um, you know, their name has never come across our minds or we, we've never read their name. We'll never read their mi- name, but um, they gave their life to Jesus and we'll get to see those people and, they get to hear their stories about what they went through, and yeah, and I mean, it's to me, it's gonna be, it's gonna put me to shame to hear some of those stories, but um, still, to be just interesting to hear um, what people gave up for for this world, for this heaven, for just thinking though, when because I hear people say that occasionally about another Christian, yeah, that other Christian does that puts me to shame, but what I've always pictured. In my mind, when uh, like when John writes at the end of his gospel, if all, everything Jesus did was written down, all the books in the world couldn't hold it. Yeah, um, there wouldn't be enough room for all the libraries that we would have to fill with the books. I kind of think that his story, everything he has done or is doing, part of his story is what he's done in my life. So when I meet you in heaven for the first time, I say, "So how'd you meet him?" And you start telling me what he did, not what you did. Right. Uh, I think there may not be a sense of shame in what. That's a good point. Because if if I look at if I look at another Christian, I say what that guy has done is really something, and what I'm doing is nothing. Is God working in me? Yeah. I'm calling what God is doing in me nothing. That's true. Is God working in him? Because if God's working in him, I'm giving the credit to him, that man, not to God. I just feel like when we get there, it will be real plain to us that, uh, yeah, he called you to work behind a computer at a church for so many years. And for all we know, in your future, he may call you to the mission field and you may have one convert and then get beheaded. And then we kind of, you know, back here, the, the Christian media says, oh, this poor pastor, poor pastor, nothing. He died for the name of Jesus. All right. That's the peak thing you could do. And we get to heaven, and the story goes, so I was beheaded. Really? Where? And you tell me the name of the country, and like, that's cool. What happened to you? 
and I was trying to get to the mission field. I was trying to start a church or trying to go in the ministry and trying to do something for God, and I never really made it. I didn't buckle down. I didn't you know, study. I didn't do it hard, and I died in a car crash. And that was it. I didn't die for Jesus. I just died in a car crash. Yeah. But at that point, we're sitting there on a log because there's logs everywhere in heaven you can sit on. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I asked you how you died, and you tell me about you know getting, getting beheaded. For the name of Jesus, I'm like, that's cool. And he said, how do you die? I said, well, I got uh, I got beheaded in the car accident. Oh, so we both, both got beheaded. <laughs> we got some think about. We got something coming. <laughs> but I think something there's going to be a, a big issue of shame there about what you do with your life and what I didn't do with mine. That's true. That's a good point. I, I mean, I may have died in a car crash, but if I was, let's say I am who I am right now. I'm going to work every day, and I'm trying my best to do the right thing with my job because I got non-believing co-workers working beside me and i realize they're watching me and i want to pay attention to that and then on sundays i come here and i give the the talent that god gave me with music i do that on the worship team that's the most i can do right now that's the most i can do right now is god doing that through me i believe so yes so i'm not going to call it nothing that's a good point yeah but i do know he gave me the talent i have he's given me the witness i have he's given me the salvation i have so i think when we sit there on that log we're going to talk about what Jesus did, not what you did, not what I did. Yeah. And we meet some other guy. He he, he walks up and, what are you talking about? That's what I was just talking about with that other girl over there. And so I think the the everybody telling their stories about what Jesus did in their life while they were in the life on earth is on the part of Jesus' story. Yeah, pointing to him and not us. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. a good point. I never thought of that. Yeah. I, I think it gets rid of the shame thing, which I don't think we're going to possess a lot of in heaven. I know there's the whole deal about there's going to be tears in heaven and Jesus is going to wipe them away, but that's not going to be a reoccurring thing, I don't believe, for the next thousand years. That may be a first-time, one-time event, and he says, you know, hey, I got this covered. Let's let's get over this. But does it say why there will be tears? Let's look and see, because I don't remember the specific details of it. What if tears are just tears of joy, tears of we're seeing... The one we've never seen with our eyes. It could just be the song that uh, Eric Clapton sang. <laughs> <laughs> Tears in Heaven? Yeah. Dun, 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 I learned that song when I was younger dun, dun, dun. from a guitar teacher. I love that song. <laughs> I used to love Eric Clapton. I haven't listened to him in years. I'm just searching tears in the Bible right quick. I'm going to search tears in Revelation. Actually, I should. Uh, I was going to say search tear singular. I'm searching tears plural, and it's not coming up with what we're referencing. Oh. It's amazing how much you can miss on a search if you just search singular and you don't do plural or vice versa. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Revelation twenty one four. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. So it's saying there won't be any more pain, no more crying, but there are tears to begin with that he wipes away. That's why I have kind of constructed in my head this doctrine of I guess you don't call it a doctrine, a thinking. You saw it twenty one four? Right. 
There's also um, 717. It says, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will be, and he will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Oh, you forgot the part before that. I only saw that no one. No hunger. Years. We're going to be eating. Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> what kind of food? What we you can, want. We can't kill animals. I mean, God can resurrect them, I guess. I mean, so we could eat the same one forever if we wanted to. I mean, can you imagine eating the same pig over and over and over again? I mean, we got to be able to eat fish. Jesus ate fish. I mean, that's one thing. Because, uh, well, there's no guarantee that he's eating fish in heaven, though. He must like fish. <laughs> Did you ever uh, read uh, The Shack? Mm-mm. The movie came out, you know, I never did go see it recently, but... I heard it was good. The the, the book is... I was a young Christian when I read it, but I don't see a lot of problem doctrinally with it. A whole bunch of people just now turned the podcast off. <laughs> but uh, basically, God the Father, Holy Spirit, and Jesus all come to this man because he has built up a wall. He has a big chip on his shoulder against God for some things that have happened in his life. God the Father appears to him as a black woman. And basically through the book, uh, she explains, I appeared to you this way because you got big time father issues and you're white. So your father was a white man, your white father. If I appear to you as some what I guess, well, honestly, what the average white Christian would want to see as a white man. Because that's some of the things that I heard when that book was out, that they just could not accept God as a woman. I, I'll be honest with you, going to a white church at that time, I didn't hear any comments about, I can't accept the black God. I didn't hear that. I heard, I can't accept God as a woman. But her whole deal that he is, she explains to him in the book is that you couldn't have handled anything I had to say to you. You couldn't have heard it if I came to you as some old white man with a long beard. <laughs> And you saw me as a father figure. So I came in a sense as a sweet old lady, as a mother figure type. And she's kind of in the kitchen cooking, etc. Jesus, of course, um, the author <laughs> makes him a Jewish man. <laughs> because the author is basing that idea on he's a resurrected man eternally forever. He was born Jewish. By bloodline, he's a Jew. So he's resurrected forever. He is a Jewish man. Uh, the Holy Spirit in that one is a Asian-ish woman. And the way he kind of paints her part in the in the whole story, it really matches what you think of the, of the Holy Spirit. But uh, all in all, the reason I brought that up, they're all sitting around the table eating. I don't remember the exact things they were eating, but he kind of makes comments and questions about, like, do you eat that? And he's pointing at Jesus' plate like he's eating sushi or something. And uh, I, I, like I said, I forget the exacts, but the Holy Spirit's basically like, yeah, that's what, that's one of his favorites. He loves that. <laughs> when you think about if, if Jesus eats something at all, and we're going to have a you know a meal, yeah. and we're going to have a big sit-down, a huge, massive meal, we're eating something. So if we're only eating vegetables, well, that's not my personality. <laughs> that's not my person. I don't identify as a vegetarian. <laughs> nope. God made me somebody. God made me a meat eater. 
Well, no, I, I know that we are like going all over the place now. Um, I ran out of notes. <laughs> well, if you, if, you, if you go back, you talk about how you know people are like, oh no, I can't imagine God as a female. Yeah. Um, I can't either, in a sense. I mean, the, the church, we're female. I mean, we're the bride in the relationship. Right. I mean, yeah. But um, it's it, hard to picture yourself as a female, isn't it? it I can't. <laughs> Damn, I can't. But, um, <laughs> but when you think about it, is that um, God made fe- made male and female, and He made that He made the diversity, and in order for Him to give that diversity in both of uh, uh, personalities or, or build. Then you, are you going to look up where God took woman out of man? Well, I was going to just look at this right here. I'll say, but in order in order for God to have uh, create male and female, he's got to he's got to put himself into both of those. Right. Um, just like you know, you know, he puts himself into creation. Um, he has those uh, qualities, and God's That's not male so you're or saying female. That he's got qualities that exist, and he's put them into the creation. And right. as far as man goes, man and woman both have qualities of God right. that go with one another. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was going to look at is Genesis 1, 26, and God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. It goes on down, and so God created man, singular, in his own image. That's singular. In the image of God, he created them, singular, singular. Or excuse me, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Hmm. So you really have male and female. Uh, in very last seconds, the only time that the female division comes out of it, he's creating a singular type being almost yeah. in his image as if it's a singular image. Yeah. That's, yeah, I, I agree with you. And people um, forget God's spirit, even though mm-hmm. Jesus himself was in the man form um god is still spirit so i yeah. mean I, I mean so i don't really understand it doesn't bother me too much i mean i it's hard for me to imagine it but it doesn't bother me what it, uh what do you think of uh the phrase then that he always used referring to god as father if he's spirit and not male or female yeah i i think you know when we think of um uh, trying to, you have to have a father to have creation, and obviously you have to have a woman as well. But you know, father, there's some kind of um, uh, lineage as far as you know. You trace back to your father. My uh, mom's all we, I guess we would have to take time to look at uh, adoption situations in the Jewish law, because adoption yeah. situations would bring you into a legal inheritance you would legally be in that family joseph is taking this kid who's not biologically his into his care as his own family and raising him as his own plus he takes mary down to bethlehem registers her in the census he is saying we are family uh i think it's pretty neat too though if you follow in uh luke 3 jesus's lineage backwards Mm mm-hmm because Matthew comes forward, Luke goes backwards. But you get down to uh, Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, or Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Mm-hmm. So you've got Adam there as a son of God. He's got no mother. 
the, I, that's, I guess that's pretty neat. The first Adam had no mother. The second Adam had no father, <laughs> in, in a way. Well, hey, that's, I never thought of that either. So it answers itself there, but... Yeah, I'm not, I'm not actually out of notes. I just didn't want to embark on another subject matter when we had stuff to go, so... Thanks for listening to the Two Spice Podcast with David and Mark. Don't forget to check out twospice.net for daily devotionals, writing on various topics and separate Bible studies. Help us out by subscribing to the podcast, write a review on iTunes, and spread the word. 